0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Transforming 45. This week, I am absolutely thrilled to have uh, internationally known author, Ariel Ford, on the show, to have a really fascinating conversation about what I know will be a lot of things. Um, But Ariel is a celebrated love and relationship expert, author, and speaker, whose mission is to help people find love, keep love, and most importantly, be love. She's a gifted writer and award-winning author of 11 nonfiction books, including the international bestseller, The Soulmate Secret, Manifest the Love of Your Life with the Law of Attraction. And so the people, welcome, Ariel. I'm so glad that you're here today. Oh, Thank you. The people who listen to my show know that I always start with tell me your story, but you have uh, you have so many stories to tell. So we are going to focus on one, and that is tell me the story of how you came to writing a fiction book after years of writing nonfiction.
1: Yeah, that was pretty crazy. So it was never, ever on my to-do list to write a novel, ever. And one day... About five years ago, my husband came walking into my office and he said, oh, I had this idea. You should write a book about me and the book should be called I Married an Alien. And I said, (laughs) that is a really dumb idea. No, thank you. And he walked out. But when he walked out, I started thinking about like, well, if I were going to write a book about Brian, what would that book be like? And I realized it would have to focus on his personality because He's just, I call him my heart chakra on legs. His whole mission in life is to make sure that everybody he comes in contact with has the experience of being loved. So I thought, well, if I were going to write a book, the, the hero of the book would have that personality. And then I stopped thinking about it. And then the next day, the title for the book came to me and I was like, oh my God, that's a great title. And then the day after that, the first line of the book came. My mother was right. And then the book started to unfold in my head like a movie. And I could see that most of it takes place in Rishikesh, India. And I kept pushing it away, like, get out of here. I'm not going to write you. Go away. I don't know how to write fiction. And then I got an email from masterclass.com. And they were promoting a course, um, with Dan Brown on how to write a thriller. Well, I love to read thrillers. Don't need to write one, but I love to read them. So I signed up for the course. And the third episode was Dan in his living room talking to the camera saying, oh, and you have to think about location as a character in the book, just like Florence Italy was a character in Da Vinci Code. And then the light bulb started to go off because, oh, if I were going to write this book, I'm never going to write. Rishikesh India would be a character in the book. So for about, I don't know, two or three weeks, this book is haunting me. It's unfolding in my head. I can see it. I'm trying to push it away. It won't go away. So I sit down and I have a conversation with God. And I said, listen, God, I don't want to write a novel. But if I'm meant to write this novel, then you need to, you need to send me one thing. I need to manifest a business class ticket to India to do research. That's about $7,000 worth of ticket. And I thought, then I felt all this relief. Oh, this is never going to happen. I'm free of the book. Two days later, I had the ticket in my hand. So I went to India. I started doing the research. Every little movie piece I saw in my head, I tripped over. I saw the spiritual bookstore. I walked into it. All this stuff that's in the book, I actually experienced. So um, I now say I had no choice but to write The Love Thief. It was inside of me kicking and screaming to get out. It took me four and a half years of writing. I had many, many, I'll just tell you, the longest chapter in the book is the acknowledgments for all the help that I had. So that's, that's the short version of what happened. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, it's a really powerful story and it's re- interesting to me uh, as I was reading that section in, the, in the, that chapter at the back of your book about place being a character. Because as I was reading, one of the things I noticed is that the story felt so much more grounded. It felt rich when it was in India and it had a completely different feeling for me when it was in, when Holly was in the States, both at the beginning and at the end. And I was wrestling with, I was really wrestling with why that was because that section when she was in India was so beautiful. Like I was having sensory experience of, you know, the smells and the textures and the colors. And so was that intentional in your writing of creating that really different um, space it, it, for how to have the it experience? Was.
1: Because I've been to India seven or eight times now. And for me, you know, some people really love Disneyland, like it's the happiest place on earth. For me, it's the most miserable place on earth. For me, everything about Disneyland is false and phony and contrived. But India is my Disneyland because all your senses come alive. You know, now here, having lived in San Diego for all these years, I don't notice what I'm hearing or seeing or tasting nearly as much as I do in India. So I really wanted the reader to feel like they were with Holly, who was experiencing India for the first time. What would that be like for her? Because it is a sensory overload. So yes, it was intentional.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it really came through. And I loved the way that Holly's character evolved while she, while she was there right? That she was able to start experiencing those things. And as the, there are a couple of sections that I really loved. Are you okay if I read what a couple yeah, of sections?
1: Yeah, let just stop there for one second oh, and, yeah. and tell your audience what the book's about. Because oh, it's yes. a romantic spiritual thriller with a very juicy revenge subplot and a surprise happy ending. So, it's about a 38 year old woman who has spent her whole life looking for Mr. Wright. It's not happening. She thinks she's found him. He betrays her in the most horrible ways possible. And she is a non believer, non seeker. She's not into any of this stuff. And yet mm-hmm. she ends up in India.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, and before I get into this, actually, I wanted to ask you about the creation of Holly, because the work that you do is helping people to find love and to be love. And I was wondering if there is inspiration for Holly from that element of the work that you do.
1: Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, like you know, so she has this guide, this mentor in the book named Deepak, and you know, people always ask me, well. Is it based on Deepak Chopra, who is my longtime former client, a good friend of mine? It's like, actually, no. Deepak's a very common name in India, like John or Bill or Steve. The, the wisdom coming out of Deepak's mouth is a compilation of, of myself and what I teach, as well as people like Gay Hendricks and Neil Donald Walsh. So it's a composite amount of wisdom that I wanted to feed in there to foster her growth
0: hmm. Yeah, it's and those were the actually those were the quotations that I underlined, because some of the themes that I that I really resonated with, because it intersects with the work that I do with women as well, is around knowing that love doesn't come from outside of yourself, right, that it is not a role that we play, it's something that lives within us. Um it was this Nothing is permanent. It's a fallacy and misdirection to live for someone or something or even the whole fantasy drama of a white picket fence. We are here on earth in this precious human form to experience the divinity of our own selves and to connect with the divinity of the universe, which ultimately isn't separate from our own true self. It's the purpose of our life. And that, I loved that. It's so powerful. And it's so antithetical to what we are taught, right? That we are taught that we are meant to live for other people and that we are to be in service of others. And while, yes, that comes through, it is more powerful when it's coming from a deep place of self-love.
1: Yeah, this could get into a really deep conversation because if you, if you just take it to the, the simplest of quantum science, yeah. there are a couple of things that we know, one of which is we are already connected to everything and everybody. We are not separate from anything or anybody. And when you know most people talk about romantic love, they're caught up in the drug high of the state we call being in love which Mm -hmm. is your brain on drugs, on oxytocin and serotonin and adrenaline and dopamine, especially dopamine. And it's not real. You're having this experience with a stranger. You don't really know this person at all. And yet you feel like you can't live without them. And it's really nature's trick to get us to procreate to keep the species going. It is not love. And it doesn't last, as anybody who's been there and left it knows. Uh, Mm -hmm. Scientifically, it lasts anywhere from six months to at the very most three years. And so I always like to teach people that love is not a feeling. Love has feelings to it, which come and go. But love, first and foremost, is a behavior love is a choice, love is a decision, love is an action, love is a way of being. And you can totally be with your soulmate life partner and love them the death. And you will have days when you hate them. (laughs) And it doesn't mean that you don't love them. Yes. So I call the state of being in love, the socially acceptable form of insanity. Mm -hmm. And it is the world's greatest drug high. And there's so much more to love. And, And that's the thing. We don't get taught. We just buy into the Disney version, into the romance of, oh, I know, I love you because I feel like there's champagne bubbles going through my veins, and and I can't think of anything but you, and I crave you. Oh yeah, I crave kettle corn and cheesecake, <laughs> and it's not good for me.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a really important conversation to have around it. it that initial. That initial love is can become an can become an addiction right which is why it, and that is it's that story where most of the narrative in our culture lives. It's the mystery and the drama of how people come together. Sorry speaking of my partner just came home and the the fur ladies in my house are excited to see him um, so this most of the narrative lives around. That that addiction, that initial romance, and there's not nearly as much story around what relationship looks like. And I loved when you used those words, when you choose it, mm-hmm. because you're absolutely right. Love is a behavior. It is when you every day wake up and choose to continue to be committed and in relationship with someone. Yeah.
1: And some days you have to choose it every five minutes, <laughs> and that's yeah. just the reality of it, you know. But people, that's... so there's basically five things that can predict the outcome of a long-term loving relationship, and that is you need to have compatibility, connection, clear communication, which thank God can be learned. Mm-hmm. Some chemistry, although chemistry is not the most important thing, the single most important factor in predicting lasting love is a shared vision for the future. We both want children. Mm-hmm. We both want to live in the city. We both want to live at the beach. We both want to be legally married and live under the same roof, or we want to leave, you know, live separately and see each other three times a week. The rules don't matter as long as they're shared. And it doesn't mean that you have to do everything together but that you're respectful of the choices your partner makes.
0: Absolutely. And that just made me think about something. So the women who, who I service and work with predominantly are women who are entering the empty nest phase. And so a lot of work that we do is around relationship because for a long time, the shared vision of the future was around children and family. And suddenly they are going through this transition and transformation, both in terms of what their family structure looks like and also personally. Because when we get to this phase, a lot of the time it's the first time we've really had a chance to ask ourselves, what do we want and who are we now? Without the influence of a lot of other people, you know. because as we're making choices about partners and family, it's still quite often, influenced by the people in our lives. And it's when we get to the stage of having life experience and knowing, oh, no, I do get to make decisions for myself. There becomes this negotiation now through evolution and role, evolution and family around what the shared vision of our future looks like now. Have you worked with some, some women who are in that phase?
1: No, because I'm working mostly with single women, Mm. looking to manifest love, and then sharing with them how to keep love. But what I do know is that your demographic is the toughest demographic because, you know, according to the curve, 48 is the worst year in a woman's life. Uh, The lowest, uh, there's all these studies on it because by then you know, they've been married for a long time. They're empty nesters. They're going through menopause or perimenopause. They have aging sick parents Mm -hmm. and they're pulled in all these directions and it's not about them. And things have gotten dull and boring in the marriage. And it's the hardest year. The good news is once you get to your fifties, things get better and better and better. And by the time you're 70, you're in bliss all the time. At least I am. So (laughs) that's a hard group to deal with. But You know it's i think it's an ego death that you go through when you're no longer mommy or at least the needed mommy and who am i now you know and so you you know it's also a time to recreate who am i as a partner to my partner Yes. you know what role will we play and what do i need that's different from what i needed before before i needed help with the laundry You know, now maybe, you know, I want to do something else. I want a cheerleader to support me in going back to school or doing that startup I always thought about or writing that book I said I was going to write someday, you know, so roles change and which is why one of the most important thing a woman can do is to use her head, not her heart when choosing a mate. Right. You know, if you're going to spend the next 50, 60 years with somebody, you want somebody who's going to be your best friend. Somebody yes. who does what they say they're going to do. Someone who's financially responsible. They don't have to have more money than you. They just have to be good with the money they have and with your money. You know, you have to be able to trust them because human beings are are pretty basic in what their needs are. We all want to be loved and accepted for who we are. And we need to be with somebody with whom we feel emotionally and physically safe. And if you don't have those two things right at the start, it's not going to get better. You know, Mm -hmm. you can't like see someone across a crowded room and, you know, your heart's pounding and you have butterflies and say, you're the one. You don't know. You need to spend a year, most likely two really getting to see how they show up and then you want to meet their family and friends and they need to meet your family friends and you need to find out about all the, all the secrets they're keeping because we all keep a lot of secrets. You know, it's not that they're necessarily bad. You just need to know what you're signing up for, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's going to hit the fan no matter how great it is at the start. It's just how life is. Mm-hmm. None of us are getting out unscathed. One, one of the crazy things about that happened when The Love Thief came out was I started getting emails and calls from readers who said to me, most of the time in a whisper, you know, you wrote this book for me. I was like, but I don't even know you. And I discovered that almost every single woman I've come across has been cheated on and betrayed and has had her heart broken. And they never talked about it. It wasn't cool to carry on through the rage and the sadness and the depression. They bottled it up. And then by reading Holly's story, they felt seen and heard. They felt like they could have some healing because a lot of the readers said, oh, my God, I didn't even know how wounded I was until I began to heal from reading The Love Feed. Mm
0: -hmm. And that is one of the beautiful things about art and creativity is it gives people an experience that they haven't necessarily had in their own lives and i think what you said is so important around actually feeling the feelings right and that i feel like it's sort of the work of women of our generation at this point is getting into removing all of the boundaries we've placed around ourselves around what we are allowed to feel and what we have labeled as negative feelings yeah right and giving ourselves the space to really just experience the emotions because it's so energy expensive when we hold all those hold emotions. You know, I I was working with somebody this morning and I said, squeeze your hands as hard as you can. Just squeeze them and squeeze them and squeeze them. I said, how does that feel? She was like, well, I just, I need to stretch them out. And that was really hard and it took a lot of energy. I said, right. It's the same thing if you were doing that to the emotions inside of you.
1: Yeah. And then you also have to get to the point where you can uh discern between emotion and obsession. So when somebody's suffering from a broken heart, broken heart and they're craving that other person, that craving is it's a a drug detox, yeah. right? They're literally craving that. And you know they're never coming back. Like your logical mind knows, "Oh, no, he has cheated on me with 17 different women and has four kids I didn't know about. He's not coming back." Mm -hmm. Right. So, how, and we've been taught that when we break up, we need to stop loving somebody, which is like so crazy. You can love the cheater, you just can't obsess about them or allow them back in. Right. So, you find a little corner of your heart. Okay. We had 12 great years. We now have two kids. Yes, he did some terrible things. Yes, it really hurt me. And, At one time, it was good, so I'm gonna love him a little bit, but I'm gonna stop obsessing and make myself available to something new. And that takes professional help. Any woman out here who thinks she can do it herself is crazy. This is why God invented therapists and coaches. We can't do the growth work alone, which I just wanna segue into one other thing, is what is the purpose of a soulmate marriage? I've had this conversation a couple of times with Harville Hendricks, who Oprah calls the marriage whisperer. If you don't know Harville Hendricks, read him. He's amazing. And Harville believes that the purpose of soulmate marriage is to take sacred vows and then create a container of safety in which it's safe for your early childhood wounds to come up to be healed. So the Hmm. deepest healing path in existence is marriage. But no one tells you that. So when it gets rough and when we're processing our stuff, we think, oh, I made a big mistake. The grass is greener over there. But it really isn't. Because if that were true, the stats would show it. Here are what the stats are. We all know that 50% of first marriages end in divorce. What no one seems to know is that 62% of second marriages and 71% of third marriages end in divorce. Now, why is that? Did you marry the same person three times or was it you who never
0: changed? Right. Yeah. (laughs) And that pattern is definitely something that needs to be examined. And it, it makes me think of a question I had also. So when you were, when you were talking about marriage, creating the sacred container and, and, and the love that can be developed in that for each other and for self, one of the things I was wondering about in the book was as, I don't want to give away a spoiler, but okay. Okay. So when Holly is walking down the aisle at the end and Deepak is with her and she says, you know, I learned what true love is from him. I was wondering what the difference is between, because she had this beautiful relationship with her mom and her auntie as well, where she had this really loving relationship and community. So what was the difference between the love that she was learning about with Deepak and the love that she had in this um, matrilineal life? Well, she
1: line? grew up. As an only child of a single mother who didn't even know the name of the sperm donor, the mother ate a quaalude at a concert and had sex with a roadie. And all she can remember of that night was that she consciously took the drug, and he had a wedding ring on, and that's all she knew. And her whole life, she wanted a dad. She wanted that, you know, uh, paternal love. That's what she was seeking. And that's what she had with Deepak. That was her fantasy father relationship. Right. So that was the love she had with him because he, he was always there for her. He was the one who guided her out of her deepest pain. Mm-hmm.
0: So was it that foundational experience she had then that allowed her to be open to a healthier relationship?
1: Well, since she'd already seen the worst that a relationship could be knowing she was never going to do that again and without spoiling the whole story she'd already spent a couple of years with her soon to be husband in a non-romantic setting where he was the guy who would take a bullet for you literally he he was a stand-up honest transparent heart-centered believable you know trustable man And so, you know, it wasn't hard to move on from there because anything that wasn't what she used to have was going to be an improvement. And she picked a good one, but not instantly, you know, it didn't happen Mm -hmm. overnight.
0: Yes which I also think is essential, that she actually took the time to heal. Because if we go back to the beginning of our discussion, talking about the chemical reaction that happens when we first are in love and the addiction that that can create, the the addictive part of our brain, if we are in pain from a breakup, wants to get back to that state so desperately. And that some, that's what gets in the way of doing the actual healing that's necessary to be able to enter a relationship. Well, that, at, at a- I
1: don't know if you remember this part, but there's a conversation that, that Holly has with Deepak where, when she's just had this total meltdown. And, and the part of her who's been ruined by this guy is still dreaming about him. And she says to Deepak, did he ever love me? And Deepak says to her, a man like this is incapable of love. Asking a man like this to love you is like asking a man with no arms to hold you Mm -hmm. simply impossible. So, because what happens, what, what sociopaths and toxic narcissists do, which is what the villain in the book is to the nth degree, you hate him from page one. Um, they're charismatic, they're charming, and they're highly adept at love bombing. They know exactly what they can. And they only target really successful, attractive women. They, you become prey for them. They want you because you're so cool and because you excel in so many areas. And they know that you've spent so much time focusing not on love, but on your career. They are able to whisper in your ear everything you ever wanted to hear. So you fall in love and get oxytocin bonded after sex with this guy who, who has love bombed you, technically love bombed you, and mm-hmm. then who he really is shows up. And then you spend all your time. What did I do wrong? How can I get him back? I know that good guy's in there. I just spent three months with that good guy. I want him back. This, is, this was my dream, my fantasy. But they're great actors. These guys can cry on cue. They, know how to, they don't know how to feel emotion, but they sure know how to fake it. And they know exactly what to say to calm you down. So if you catch them in a lie, some of them will deny it. But the really smart, smart ones will say, you know, you're right. I sort of did fib a little bit on that. And I did it because I didn't want you to think any less of me. I, I've been waiting for you my whole life. The idea that you would think less of me is so painful that I told a lie to make sure that didn't happen. And then, of course, you're even more in love with him because now you think he's being vulnerable and transparent when all he is is manipulative. And these guys exist. You know, I have a a producer who's going to turn the love thief into a limited streaming series, and she calls the book Eat, Pray, Love Meets Dirty John. (laughs) And that is exactly what it is. Yeah, exactly what Dirty John did to his victim.
0: Absolutely. And it's so complicated because I remember um, in a similar section in the book when Holly said, I feel like there is a good Barry in there who's surrounded by this awful Barry. And that is the that is the complexity of dealing with these kind of relationships, because most of the time, narcissists and sociopaths aren't just born, right? They, they are this way because of trauma that they have experienced themselves. So there is the, like the empathetic part that wants to recognize that and know that. If they hadn't had that trauma, they might be different people. But you can't but,
1: fix them and you can't yes. change them. Exactly. you can't change them. It's like the psychopath kids who start by killing dogs and then become serial killers. There is no drug for that. There's no therapy treatment for it. All you get to do is choose. Am I willing to know that most of what he says is a lie and that he's going to cheat on me and he's going to steal my money? Am I willing to do that? Or am I willing to suffer through the separation process, get a good therapist or a coach, work through it and not blame myself because you are a victim. In those kinds of relationships, you're a victim. It's not like, oh, you know, now in retrospect, I can see I missed the red flags. You know what? I can't tell you how many women I've said, I've pointed out the red flags to, and they think they're going to be the one that changes them because it's so because they have two beliefs. One, this is my last chance. There's nobody else out there for me. And two, he's telling me everything I ever wanted to hear, you know, so, so you, you've been victimized and you have to forgive yourself. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Because the guilt that you can hold around. And, the shame. and, and the-
1: there's so much shame around it.
0: Yes, absolutely. And that can be part of what holds you captive for so long in a relationship like that because of the shame of thinking I should have known better.
1: Right. Right. I did this to myself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I I was wondering, yeah, Barry is one of the ickiest characters I have ever read (laughs) ever. How did it feel to sort of like get inside that skin and write that character?
1: Well, it was an easy character to write because I've known three characters like that. So I took, you know, column A, column B, column C, you know, at the beginning of the book, it says, this book is a work of fiction, inspired by actual events, names have been changed to protect the guilty and the innocent. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it, it it was easier. And I've got material I didn't even use.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I can, I can imagine. Because... Yeah. Toxic narcissists are, they're, they're an endless well that, and it really seems to be a theme that is coming up in our culture at the moment. And I'm wondering if you have any insight as to why that is is surfacing so much right now.
1: You know, I don't know why, um, but it's very scary that we have multiple world leaders who are like this, right? Yeah. And I don't think I even need to name names. It's very clear who they are and they're in control. So it's, it's a much bigger conversation than I can actually contribute to. All I want to do is, you know, alert women to when you're being love bombed, okay, get to a professional right away Mm -hmm. and just say, listen, I'm so attracted to this person. You know, it looks like the greatest thing ever and it's moving at the speed of light because that's what they do. They move really fast. I mean, Barry had her hooked on the first hour they were together, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I've been waiting for you all my life. I can't wait to have more children. You are so beautiful. How is it you're still single, you know? Mm -hmm. All of that, you know, and then, you know, then there's the roses and the candy and the clothes and the plastic surgery.
0: I had such a visceral reaction to that when that was the engagement gift. I was like, ah, no, run, go. That really,
1: truly happened to a friend of mine. That really (sighs) happened. Wow. And she already had great boobs. (laughs) What do you, you don't even need
0: this. No, oh, well, but he
1: just wants me to be a little bigger for my wedding dress. I
0: was like, "Oh my god, oh no, yeah." That is when someone is literally telling you that your skin needs to be different, that your everything about you needs to be different. There, there is no negotiation there. Um, there were some really great, uh, also when when Holly was in India, some really beautiful and meaningful spiritual ex- experiences that she had there. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the power of the ganja, of the river.
1: So the character in the book, the holy woman, Ji, is a mm-hmm. real person. She's actually one of my best friends. And when she ha- has her awakening experience in the ganges river when she's floating in the river and giving her pain to the river all of that really happened to her i was just Mm -hmm. you know with her permission sharing her experience that she was able to surrender years of physical and sexual abuse by her birth father years of being in institutions for drug addiction and and eating disorders and now She's in her early 50s. She has a PhD from Stanford. She runs the largest ashram in India. And she shares her story that, you know, the belief in the Hindu tradition is that the Ganges River is a goddess, Ma Ganga. And if you give your pain to the river, you will be healed. And as she was, as other friends of mine have been. I have not floated in the Ganges. Thank God I went to therapy in the Hoffman process. So I've dealt with my deepest, darkest issues. <laughs> but I, um, the the location of where she goes in the river is one of the cleaner places for the river, mm-hmm. up in the north part of Rishikesh, which is described in the book. So yeah. uh, how does it happen? Who knows? I, you know, I, I was in India with Deepak Chopra once, and we were about to do a circumambulation around Mount Aruncula was a 12 mile walk underneath the full moon of Pongal, and with a half million people it's this crazy experience and as we were starting the walk he turns and he looks at me and with this glint in his eye he says he says in India the divinity and spiritual experiences are not hard to find they're impossible to avoid. <laughs> and he's right. You know, just walking along the river in Rishikesh, stuff will happen. The veils are thinner. I had that experience multiple times last time I was there. I remember I was walking through Topavan, the little village, and I had seen people wearing red strings around their wrists that had been blessings. And I was thinking, God, I'd really like to have a blessing. And I feel a tap on my shoulder, and I turn around, And it's a man dressed as Hanuman, the monkey god, all painted up with a crown on. And he says to me, Madam, may I give you a blessing? And then I got the blessing in the red string, which I wore for six months till it fell off. So, you know, magic exists and it's easier to find in India.
0: That is really powerful and such a good, I mean, going to those spaces and having those experiences can build that sense of trust that magic does exist everywhere and be able to start building your tools for how, and then how do I access it when I'm, when I'm back in the, in the everyday life that I live, were you able to bring that back with you?
1: Yeah, Definitely. I've always really believed in magic and I've always trusted that the universe has my back and I've had to learn along the way that sometimes it's a real blessing when I don't get what I want. Mm-hmm. You know, like when I look back, I was a first-time bride at forty-four. You know, I waited a long time, and went and you know, when I look back at all the men I thought I wanted to marry that I did marry, I am so grateful now. You know, it would have mm-hmm. never worked. You know, especially one of them. He he was my first and yeah, you know, toxic narcissist. You know, I was just completely strung out and addicted and thought he was the one.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: um, so not getting what you want. Like I always say, rejection is project is protection. Yes. Right. So if, yes. If, it, if you're online and you're dating and you think you've had a good date and somebody ghosts you, thank God for that. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: It, well,
1: yeah. that's, that was not your guy or you're not your girl. So thank God for that. <laughs>
0: Yes, it absolutely was not meant to be. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I was really fascinated by, and please correct me if I say this incorrectly, it was the naughty readings. Uh huh. That's right. Okay. So, did, did you you had one done?
1: Oh, I've had many done. Yeah. So, it, so five thousand years ago, there was this seer who wrote down the futures of lots of different people on palm leaves. They're called uh, palm leaf readings, naughty readings, and you can submit your thumbprint they don't in order to get a reading they don't want your name or date of birth or any of that you submit women submit the left thumbprint men submit the right thumbprint and then they go in search of these bundles of lots of different palm leaves and when they think they found one that has your leaf in it you go in for the reading and it's a very slow process because you have a priest who's reading the ancient tamil off the leaf and then you have an interpreter who's turning the ancient Tamil into what i call Hinglish, because right. even though it's english it's really hard to understand and it takes a long time till they determine they've got the right thing because they they ask you a bunch of questions like you know uh your mother's first name begins with l her name has five letters uh her name is laura uh she is uh born in september you know she has diabetes like and if you're saying yes to all those questions, then they say, oh, and your father's name is this. And and when you get to like 20 correct answers, that's your leaf. Okay. And then they tell you everything about your life, starting with the date and time you were born, which is on the leaf. You know, wow. early childhood, college, career, kids, health, money, real estate, all the way up to if you want. They'll give you the date, time, and circumstances of your death. Most people don't want that. I did, and I'm really pleased with the information I got because I had had a, a Vedic palm reading in Varanasi, India, many, many years ago. And, and the guy said to me, oh, you're going to live to be such and such. And I was like, yeah, right. What line says that? Right. 3,000 miles south at this Nadi reading in Tamil Nadu, They said the exact same thing, exact same thing. You're going to live to be X, Y, Z. And would you like to know how you're going to die? And I was like, yes, absolutely. So I know that I'm going to have a very fast, painless death. I will not be suffering with a terrible disease, which makes me happy.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask that question. How does that, knowing how your story is going to end or this, this earthly chapter of your story is going to end. How does it shift your perspective or the way that you live day to day? A
1: couple of things in the belief system around the naughty leaves. They say that you can change the future. So let's say I get to two years before my expiration date and I decide, you know, I'm still healthy. I'm still feeling good. I want to stick around. There are what they call pujas that the priest can do on your behalf to extend your life. So at this point, I'm just leaving it all alone. I've got quite a bit more time and I'll see as I get closer, you know, how am I feeling? Because I have absolutely no fear of death, Mm -hmm. none at all. I do, however, have a fear of suffering. Yes. You know, I do not want to be bedridden, dependent on everything and everybody just to keep my heart beating, not interested in that, you know? And I'm perfectly willing to leave my body really just about at any time, although I'm not in any hurry because of all the people that are already there on the other side that I'm looking forward to seeing again. So, but the naughty reading's incredible and, and uh, it gives a lot of description in the book about it. And at the end of the book, I tell you how you can have your own naughty reading. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's a tab that's open on my computer, yeah. <laughs> waiting to look into that. Well, thank you so much, Ariel. This was such a really powerful conversation. And for anyone who is looking for a book to dive into, to really have some healing, because there is a, a very healing element of this in seeing yourself, in living through the spiritual practices that Holly experiences, and just seeing your story told told in a way that you can see yourself is is connection, right? So what you say it is about being love. So yeah. thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed this oh, conversation. So thank you for joining me on this transformative journey. Your support means the world. if you resonated with our conversation and want to uplift the transforming 45 community, here's what you can do. Connect with me about how you can reclaim your own magic. Check the show notes for all the ways you can find me subscribe and share hit the subscribe button. So you never miss an episode. And if you found value here, share it with friends, family, and anyone seeking inspiration. Leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your words can make a significant impact and help others find their way to these transformative stories. Join the conversation on social media platforms. Follow us on Instagram, at LBoat. You can also find me on Facebook and TikTok. And if you know someone whose story could inspire others, reach out and let me know. I love connecting with diverse voices that carry the power to transform lives. Remember, your support fuels my mission to share authentic stories of transformation. Thank you for being part of the Transforming 45 family. Until next time, keep shining your light and embracing your journey.
1: The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an ElectraCast production. ElectraCast. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys,
0: the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool.
1: 50 years of music with 50-year-old white guys.